Before we begin, we want to make the listener aware that this episode contains adult content related to abuse, sexual assault, and suicide. Due to the nature of the content, we will be using a pseudonym for the storyteller and will not be using any identifying information in this episode. If you are struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. You can place a free and confidential call to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. We've linked the number in our bio. You are beautiful and you are loved. Caitlin wanted to express a few things to our listeners that were extremely beneficial to her own healing. You can find books and other media resources she suggested in our bio. She also stated that therapy with a trauma-informed therapist that was not affiliated with the church was life-saving for her. The Bodies Behind the Bus team wants to acknowledge that this is extremely heartbreaking content, but we are so proud of Caitlin and the work she has done to heal. We are honored to help her use her own voice to share her story. I'm Jonna Harris, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Marsville bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. So when did you start going to an SBC church then? Was that 18? No, it was when I was 11. Okay. So I started, yeah, I started going to an SBC church when I was about 11. And my parents were going there too. Neither of them were raised evangelical, so they were kind of really unprepared for what it was all about. And they, yeah, they didn't really kind of, they were not consistent part of my own spiritual growth. So I was just kind of left to my own devices and the stuff that people were telling me. And a lot of what I got out of being a kid growing up evangelical was a lot of fear of hell. Cause I was like when the left behind series came out, which was horrible, <laughs> horrible. I had nightmares about the rapture and being like, Oh, dude, oh no, I'm all by myself. We're all still here. No one's been raptured yet. Right. All our feelings are still in our mouths. <laughs> Somehow. It's so ridiculous. Yeah. So that was a big one. And then purity culture was like another big one. So it was kind of like, you need to bring your friends to church because if they're not saved, then they're going to go to hell and it'll basically be your fault because you could have, it was just fucked up. Sorry for cursing, but I won't you're curse, okay. but it's okay. No, you're, you're fine. fine. Okay. You know what's was- you know what's crazy is when I was I went to an SPC church when I was growing up to you for most of my life and and I remember when I was like twelve or thirteen, I used to read because because uh, the church would preach like you're all going to hell like uh-huh. everybody's going to hell and I would like plead with God like I was like I need to be saved like I, I don't feel like I'm saved mm-hmm. and I would read the scriptures. And I'd literally think I was demon possessed. I don't oh. think I've ever told you that, Jonna. Like That's literally, terrible. I'd be like, I, I'm a demon possessed. Per, like, and it like traumatized me so much that mm-hmm. I like wanted to kill myself. Like I was mm-hmm. depressed. I had all of these nightmares. Mm-hmm. And like, is this part all of my, just because of your like the thoughts that you would have? The church, and then how I was treated by my parents, and oh, like yeah. all of that together, it was like this place where. It just wasn't safe for me. Right. So I, yeah. I feel you when you say, like, everybody's going to hell and the rapture, right. like, scaring. Because I was scared, too. 
Yeah. Yeah, I was scared that the rapture... I would wake up in the middle of the night sometimes and think, uh, like, no one's here. I missed the rapture. Like, yeah. Literally. I yes. mi- like, I missed Same. it. So yeah. messed up. Uh-huh. It is. So, yeah. anyways. All right, I'm sorry. No, no. It's totally... That's exactly what it was like. I'd come home and no one would be home and be like, it happened. It happened. It happened. Oh, without my God. <laughs> yeah. They just traumatized all of us. Yes. Thanks, yes. Tim LaHaye, for that I know. as well. As all your terrible marriage advice. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. Horrible. It's so bad. It's so all right. bad. So, you're 11, and then did you stay mm-hmm. at the same church? I stayed at that church. So the funny thing about me is I was kind of a spiritual seeker. I'm trying to remember what happened. Oh, I stayed there, but then I got really uncomfortable because they started pushing the purity culture stuff a lot. And I, the folks that I was surrounded by, the other kids in the youth group, they kind of encouraged you to insulate yourselves and to not um, interact with non-Christians, right? Which I'm like, this is bananas. That's the total opposite of what we're supposed to do. But they would kind of shun me if I was hanging out with some of my friends who smoked weed and I played a lot of sports. And so I would be out and out and not, I wasn't big into doing any substances at the time, but I would hang out with my friends when they were. And so the youth group kids would basically say that I was being a bad Christian. And so that, and coupled with a really big explosion of purity culture was really off-putting. I, w- I was really into reading the Bible and discovering stuff for myself, and they just wouldn't hear me when I would ask questions. And we, they'd kind of put me down <laughs> and be dismissive, especially when it came to stuff about, you know, we're responsible for boys lusting after us. If we're immodest, then it's our fault if they try something, you know. And I just couldn't reconcile that. And when I point out to them, like, well, what about the verse where Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, you pluck it out. And they would just be like, that still doesn't give you any excuse to wear a spaghetti strap top. It's like, it it was just ridiculous. Yeah. So that grew to be pretty much a bummer because I didn't have a lot of friends at church because of the friends I had outside of church. And I wasn't willing to give up my friends outside of church. So I started going to another SBC church, which I didn't know that's what it was, with some of my friends. And that kind of continued that whole sense of purity culture, having to obey authority. And when I was in high school, they would really hammer the sense of if you're not connected to a church, you'll be lost forever and your connection to God will be lost forever. And they would do these things where they'd be like, you know, 10 of you stand up and now nine of you sit down. And they're like, that's what's going to happen when you go to college. Nine out of 10 are going to leave the church. And looking back, I'm like, well, of course, because you get input from the outside world. And you're like, this is BS. Like, why would I be here? You know? So that second church when I was in high school was where I met my ex-boyfriend. We dated from when I was 18 to 20. The SVC church was kind of weird because... They would encourage youth leaders to, or youth group members to become youth leaders straight out of high school. And I think it was because they didn't, they wanted to keep you roped in while you were in college, you know, but it's just not a good idea to have teenagers still basically trying to lead other teenagers, you know, it was just too much. And my ex-boyfriend was raised entirely in the church. His family was really well off. I didn't know at the time because he was really charming and good looking and he kind of love bombed me and I didn't have a really good view of myself a lot due in part to the church's teachings from a 
the time I was 11 onwards of just not trusting your mind, not trusting your body, you're dirty if you allow any of these things to happen, any kind of like sexual things. I mean, so he was, uh, yeah, he was very clever. And so I thought that he really cared for me and he was a little older than me, but we were both youth group leaders. And so he, shortly after we started dating, he would start giving me alcohol to kind of, I don't know, make me more coercible, if that's a word. From there, he slowly started forcing me to do sex acts on him that got progressively worse over time. And I had a really conflicted view of it because on the one hand, the way I grew up, I'd been groomed by the adult men in the church to be subservient to a man, to obey a man. And on the other, I'd also been told that it was my fault if a guy did any of these things to me and that I was damaged goods and nobody would love me if those things had happened. So I kind of had this sense of I need to stay with him because nobody's going to love me after this. Yeah. So he, yeah, just kept pressuring me and I can't count the amount of times that he orally or digitally raped me. And he would tell me things like, you can't ever tell me if you go on birth control because I wouldn't be able to control myself. So again, putting the responsibility on me, trying to think of what else I meant to say. And this is well, this is well, you guys were both youth leaders. Yes. Mm -hmm. And was there anyone like aware of what was happening or like was the, the pastor at the time aware of what was going on? I don't think so. And I was too afraid to say anything because mm-hmm. I was so ashamed of what was happening. And so it was kind of, and I also didn't, because I'd been told that it'd be my fault. I like what I you thought didn't want that people I would, to know. You know, like ashamed, super ashamed because I thought this is my fault. This is my struggle. I don't know how to get out of it. Right. And, and how uh, much older than you was he? A couple years. Okay. So mm-hmm. you're 18. Yeah. He's 20, mm-hmm. 21, old mm-hmm. enough to get you alcohol. Right, right. Uh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. So I I don't know about you, but I always thought like if I mess up, then I just I have to marry the person. Is that kind right. of where you were at? A hundred percent. Like, well, we're getting married because yeah. this is it. We made the mm-hmm. decision and now I'm stuck. Right. I felt very stuck. And he would use the Bible against me and say like, well, you know, the Bible says that you have to obey me, you know, and looking through it at the time, I was like, no, that's not what it says because we're not (laughs) married. And right in that whole verse where it says, wives submit to your husbands, it also says in husbands love your wife, like Christ loved the church. And it's like, this isn't something that Christ would do to his church. It was really confusing. Right. And he wasn't your husband. Right. But he was assuming that role, I guess, Mm -hmm. for you guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think we should take a minute to explain purity culture for those that don't, or one of us take a stab at explaining purity culture, Jonna? Sure. For our listeners who listened to episode 10 with author Sheila Gregoire, she talks a lot about purity culture. And I don't even know if she explicitly says purity culture, but the, the content really revolves around purity culture. So it's this idea that like you need to be a virgin until you're married. Mm-hmm. and that 
sex is good, but only in marriage. And sex outside of marriage is toxic, evil. It's going to taint you. You're never going to be. It's almost like if you have sex or do something sexual outside of marriage, the way it's taught is that there's like no redemption for you. Mm -hmm. And it's very bizarre because what the Bible says and what the Bible shows us is that God can enter into anything and redeem us. And he washes us clean. When you put on a purity culture lens, it's sure God can forgive you for that, but you're never going to get it back. You're never going to be a virgin again. You're never going to be clean again. So there's so much shame. And then on top of that, there's this whole idea that women are temptress. Mm -hmm. So if you don't, if you shake your hips the wrong way or wear the wrong clothes, then you can be responsible for causing your brother to stumble. And for men, similar to what Sheila was saying in episode 10, you better bounce your eyes. Don't look at them. Don't be in a room alone with a woman because you never know when her witchy ways are going to woo you into having sex with her. And so it really just objectifies the women and shames men. Mm -hmm. There's nothing redemptive or good or beautiful about purity culture that I can think of. Yeah, I just mm -hmm. remember the whole like, women or girls taking vows to not have sex before marriage and wearing the purity jo rings. Yeah, and, Jonas Brothers had their purity rings. And, mm -hmm. and like it, it and it was really placed on the women more than the men. So that's like when I think of purity culture, I think of like I I think Caitlin in in some your story you talk about it created a culture where you felt like you were a second class citizen almost or 100%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So women need to be, you know, subservient to men, and then they also need to be the protectors of these raging male hormones. hormones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> or yeah. like the fact that the fact that something went too far is clearly your fault. Because is your why fault? Would he, yeah. Yeah. Why would he ever have the control over his own actions to be mm -hmm. able to stop himself? Right, which is so damaging because it literally it creates a rape culture. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you're responsible when that happens to you. Mm -hmm. And I think that paired with the teachings of the church that I grew up with, and then also the lack of comprehensive sex education of any kind, you don't get taught the sex is pleasurable. You don't get taught about consent at all. And that is super duper harmful because you can't just say, oh, this horrible, terrible thing, don't ever do it, don't even think about it, deny all these natural urges you're having as a teenager, and then all of a sudden flip a switch when you get married, and it's the best thing in the whole world. It's like, we're the, how do we get from A to B, you know? Mm -hmm. And where are women taught that it feels good for us and that it should feel good for us and that we have an organ in our body that's specifically made for us to feel pleasure, which is different from the male anatomy. Like, we don't get that. So it's really harmful. And I think that was a big, another big reason why I didn't say anything, because I didn't have a language for what happened to me. I had no idea that it was rape. I mean, I did on some level, because I was talking to a friend of mine in preparation for this interview who knew me at the time, and we were really good pals, and he was so sweet to me. And I, uh, I said, I get like, part of having post-traumatic stress disorder is you get kind of you can't remember stuff in a coherent narrative. It just comes in these fragments. And uh, so I was just kind of talking to him to kind of reality test in a way. And I said, well, what do you remember me about me about that time? Like after me and my ex broke up and he said, I remember you telling me that you felt dead inside. And I asked if I could help you. And you said to me that 
you are helping me just being you because you're not raping me. And so he was like, on some level, you knew. And yeah, it's just really, it was really hard. It was really hard to be that isolated and alone for that long. It's a long time when you're that young to live in that for two years. Yeah, so it was, it was a tough time. It was definitely a tough time. That's a lot of shame lot. to carry, too. Yeah. Ugh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. And you didn't have anybody to talk to no. at the church. Mm-mm. And there was no safe place for you to express any emotion or feeling about what was happening to you. No, because part of the other thing I've learned in SBC churches in Acts 29 is that they tell you that it's okay to not be okay, and we're all broken people and all this other shit. But when you come to them with a genuine need or concern, you get gossiped about, you get told that you're doing a bad thing, you get told that you can't be a part of stuff. So it's just like, what? so I had to choose between one of two isolations, right? Either I tell them what's going on and they tell me that it's my fault and I'm doing bad and I can't be connected to the church anymore, or I just stay quiet where at least I can be around people and feel some sense of connection. Well, and your boyfriend, like you said, was very charismatic. He's probably very well liked from what I remember you telling me. He was Mm -hmm. kind of a very big presence in the yeah. in the space that you were in so it would be hard um and i think this is something that there are women out there that will relate with you when you're with a man that's got a lot of charisma and is very well liked and on a trajectory that's heading towards an authority position you know those types of men if you're standing up against them and saying hey something's going on this isn't right you are kind of seen as the bad guy like why are you why are you trying to take them down or what Mm -hmm. there's so much that goes into that like no one's gonna believe me if i know the rest of the world's not seeing that side of him Mm -hmm. exactly they're only seeing the like savior side of exactly yeah yeah and uh, i mean you think about after the me too movement happened it was like it was really triggering because it's like all of a sudden it's just this flood seeing Harvey Weinstein held accountable was nice. But then also in the midst of that, you had those cases like Brock Turner, where they're like, oh, we can't ruin his life. So he'll get six months in jail. And it's like, are you fucking kidding me? He ruined this girl's life. What about her? Nobody cares. And so it was stories like that that reinforced to me all those years later of like, I, that the same thing would have happened to me. I would have been vilified. He would have been exalted. I would have been cast out. I was just like, no, (laughs) it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it then at all. Yeah. And so you carried that completely by yourself. Mm -hmm. And can you kind of share a little bit about how that progressed and how that ended for us a little bit? And then we can segue into more of your story. Sure. Yeah. He was becoming more and more aggressive and would put me in positions that were more and more humiliating. I kind of got to this point where he was just also really controlling. And I thought to myself, like, he's the main character in this story. And he wants every single person to be a supporting role. So we got into a fight. And I was like, after one instance where it was, like, really humiliating what he did to me. And uh, I was just like, you can't treat me like a doll. Like, I'm a human being. Was what I said. 
And he was just like, well, I, I know that. And that's how I'm treating you. And I don't understand what you're saying. I said, I don't think you understand that. You're not letting me have a say in anything. And I'm not okay with that. And he was just like, well, you know, I think I have let you have a say and we're headed towards marriage. Like that would be happening soon. And I said, until you can treat me as your equal, I can't do anything further with you. And so um, he broke up with me. Kind of fine. He was cheating on me with another youth leader. I didn't know that. And I was really shattered. The other worst part was, is that everybody knew about the cheating besides me. So my friends told me after I'd found out to my best friends who weren't in the church and they were like, yeah, we, we knew, but, and we told this girl that if she didn't tell you by the certain date, we were going to tell you. And I was like, so everybody knew <laughs> it was just, it was awful. And was he allowed to stay a church leader, even mm -hmm. though he had been cheating on you? Yep. Yeah. And it, it broke my heart to leave the youth group because I had gotten really close, especially this, this group of girls that I'd known since they were eighth graders. I was brokenhearted because they came to me and they were talking about like, hey, they're being like really vocal about what they're doing and we're not quite sure what to do. And one of the other youth leaders was like, I think we should go talk to the youth pastor about this. And I was like, yeah, right. No way. What? I was like, so what I said, they were going to tell me that I'm call me bitter for talking about it if I bring it to their attention. Like I knew that straight off. So I ended up just leaving because I, they didn't do anything and I just couldn't stay there anymore. And I really, really started to have a hard time. I had started having like nightmares and flashbacks probably when I was about 19, when it started to get really bad. And I'd also have really bad insomnia. I was drinking a lot to cope with the anxiety I felt. I felt very depressed, very detached from my body. Like I was walking around in a fog. I started doing really terribly in school all of a sudden. I just like couldn't make myself go to class. It was really, really awful. I tried to get help at the school I went to, but the therapist was like a, a student and she was very sweet, but it just didn't help at all. <laughs> and yeah, so I started she was to like, like not prepared or qualified to handle what what no. you needed. No. And I still wasn't given a language for what happened to me. So even in describing it, I had a hard time. And so eventually I just kind of started pretending like I was getting better because I didn't want her to feel bad. So she was like, you're doing so good. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm going to go. So I just kind of floated around for a while after that. I just felt very untethered and it was just a really confusing time. And I was also afraid a lot of the time because I couldn't bear to go into a church. I was just super, I had a very strong avoidance for those things. And I didn't want to run into anybody that knew him. I didn't want to talk about him. I didn't want to associate with anyone that knew him. It was just too, too painful. At this time, was he still a rising phoenix in the <laughs> SBC world? Mm -hmm. So where you were, was that kind of like he was kind of getting known or it was just like in your age group, people knew who he was and you're kind of, you can run into people. And yeah. Yeah. He was very well known. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Mm -hmm. What's crazy is that it, it's sickening is there's no accountability for him mm -hmm. in this story, which, right. I mean, I, I just, it breaks my heart, not only for you because you know, you're left with all of this trauma, but I just think about like a broader sense, I guess, or a larger view of it like how many stories are like yours mm -hmm. at this time and how many men have this history and still are in power 
and these right. churches. And then we ask questions like, why do people not want to go back to churches? Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Like we, we have, it's just from like a Christian ethics or a Christian, I guess, worldview. Why would you want to go back mm-hmm. if, if this is your reality, if this is what your view of what the kingdom is, why do you want anything to do with it? Exactly. So, yeah. And the rapture. So, <laughs> exactly. You're right. Yeah. Right. So like going into that, right? I, We're I, all going to get raptured eventually. So Yeah. Yeah. But clearly not me. So I got to live in fear. <laughs> so <laughs> that was kind of part of it because my family was very much still involved with the church um, and didn't see anything wrong with it. I obviously did not tell them. I ended up telling them later, but they would just kind of just instilled to me like you have to be a part of a church. Your soul is in peril if you're not. And it's just that kind of teaching over time is just horrifying for a young person. That's really damaging because the one place that like as I share more of my story, like I, the way that I talk about it to my friends now is that my primary abusive relationship was the Christian church. That was the biggie because it's the same story every time, every time I tried somewhere. And so your parents, so you said you eventually would tell your parents and your parents' response was not one of like, oh, this is horrible. We need to help you and we need to figure out a way to be there for you. It was more about your soul, like the fact that you weren't plugged back into the system. When I told them, I didn't tell them why I had left or what had happened. They All they'd known is that we'd broken up, but they didn't know the details. So okay. years later... When they were saying to me, like, yet again, after I'd had a bad experience with the with my ex-husband uh, that comes later, I they were like, well, you really need to be engaged in a church, you know, like, it's really bad for you not to be. And I said, so I just dumped on him. And I said, this is what has happened to me. I'm never going back to a church. Every single, I'm like, I know there are good Christian men out there. I know that. I've just so happened to get some that are so horrifically bad that it's made me never want to be near one ever again. And if you keep trying to force me into this, what you keep telling me without meaning to, because they are very loving and supportive of me, without meaning to, what you're telling me is that they're right and I'm wrong because they're still a part of it and I'm not. That's what you're saying. Yeah. And and I think this is important to say, too. As we get into your story, you know, the abuse you suffered at an SBC church by a leader of an SBC church, even though it was a youth leader, that's not Christianity. Meaning that if that person is confessing Christianity and that church is saying this is Christianity and they're allowing these behaviors to happen, and this man is still okay with what happened, mm-hmm. that's not Christianity at all. That is evil. Mm-hmm. And I think what breaks my heart the most is the fact that in your story, they've taken Christianity and they've made it, they've distorted it, and they've Mm -hmm. said, this is what the norm is. Then they just kind of toss you out to the side because you won't accept it or you won't fall in line. And that impacts you. Like That impacts your relationship with God and what you think and believe. Mm -hmm. So you're at college, you're kind of, what I think you used a word, you said you were untethered. Oh, yeah. So you're kind of like uh-huh. floating in the wind. Are you attending church at this point? You said you you said you were actually having avoidance to attending church at this point, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So what happens next? You're What are you? Are you 20 now? Yeah. Okay. So I, I didn't go for probably two years. 
Yeah. I did a bunch of other things instead. I traveled a lot, got into a lot of trouble because you're not really, <laughs> when you're like in the throes of full blown PTSD, you're not really, you're not thinking clearly because your brain's hijacked constantly. Mm-hmm. So I was very, very reckless, but I had a lot of fun. Uh, so that was good. <laughs> good. <laughs> but, did yeah. you, were you going into this? So you have PTSD as you're going into this time of your life. Like, what's your self worth like? Oh, uh, it was just non-existent. And the problem was, it's like, I didn't know I had PTSD because that first therapist I saw didn't screen me for it. She just thought I was depressed, but it's like this, it's so much depression is just like one tiny piece of the whole thing. So it took me until I was 28 to get diagnosed correctly. Mm -hmm. So during, so during this time before I was in churches, I'd gone to seek help. I'd gotten my primary care doctor had given me like some SSRIs, which are like antidepressants and those did not work at all. I hated them. So I didn't have anything. And I eventually, I had kind of a near death experience <laughs> and that made me freaked out. And then I was, I was meeting with a friend who I'd known from my old church and she was just like, you know, I really think that God's telling you something like you really do need to get connected again. And I was terrified and I felt horrible. And so I was like, okay, I got to try something. So the Acts 29 church in town was like where a lot of younger folks would go. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'll give that a shot. Like, that'll be fine. And so the first day I went, it was really weird because a lot of young kids all my age. And the only people who said hi to me were dudes. And then the women were really not friendly at all. Mm -hmm. And what I would kind of come to find is that there was a big push to get married and put down roots and start having kids to invade the city, which creeped me out a little bit. And I was like, this is kind of and <laughs> it's like an alien invasion, literally. Yeah. I'm like, this is so violent. Like, this is weird to me. What? Anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, it is shocking that. So what year was this? Do you remember? Or a year around? It was like early 2000s, mid 2000s. Yeah. It was probably like, I probably was there f- on and off from 2008 to 2010. Okay, yeah. So this is like right when Mark Driscoll was like really oh, coming to He's coming into time. himself in the network. And I know your particular church was like fanboyed for Driscoll. So mm-hmm. the language you're hearing, this is like exciting men be men and go like kill your food and eat it raw. <laughs> yeah. We have to protect all the women and like they are just like, are trophies right they're these fragile trophies but they're also responsible for all of us like what the mm-hmm. f- for keeping yeah. us hemmed in because again it's like still purity culture so you're supposed to be the subservient sweet little submissive thing and then you're supposed to be like just a sex doll on the other side of it right but also acts 29 is like cool so you're like okay wait yeah but so also all the girls are trendier and the guys yeah. are like young and hip so it's like and this is part of what freaks me out about Acts 29 and why I really wanted to focus on Acts 29 the way Jay and I have is you walk into the doors of an Acts 29 church and you might be put off by a couple of things like you were, where you're like, well, um, the word invasion is a little intense <laughs> for me. Mm-hmm. But the people seem like you're like, OK, wait a second. These seem like normal people or like, oh, mm-hmm. they like good coffee, too. And like they're artistic and 
Like they, they kind of have their finger on the pulse of culture and they will go out for a beer with me. And it's not the same, like what you and Jay experienced as kids with this SBC. Right. They're like, we said, like the hip younger brother that likes to like go out to the bar at night. And when mom and dad find out, they're like, oh, whoops. And they're, we're cute Mm -hmm. though. Look at us. And so that's, what's kind of alarming about Acts 29 is people don't realize that underneath that facade is the same thing you guys grew up with just with Mm -hmm. cool piled on top of it exactly yeah yeah and there was a big push to not just come to church but you got to give us money you got to start serving in some capacity you got to do all this and it was just like a lot i just didn't like being pressured like that and it made me very uncomfortable and it also was weird to me because they would see, they kind of wanted to do making all the men into pastors because they go, Duke and Jolder's pastors. And then I was like, dude, but you can't afford to keep all these guys on staff. So why are you training up all these pastors with nowhere to go? It was like a weird pyramid scheme to me. I'm like, this is really strange. Well, that's because that was, a, it was a pyramid yeah. scheme for you guys yeah. at that church. Right. To get them free labor. They were making money off of each of these little franchises. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, I just kind of never, never got fully engaged, never joined any of the home groups or anything like that. And when they started to preach on like Driscoll's real marriage or whatever, I was just like, this is now we've gone totally off script. Like we're not even using the Bible anymore. Like what the, what are you doing? Yeah. The term smoking hot wife still makes me, my skin crawl. Like I hate that. I hate it. It's so disgusting to me to just think of like this, yeah, she's this object, but isn't this cool? Like I'm treating her, you know, like women can be sexual too. Sex is a good thing. I'm like, dude, I have never had anyone more sex obsessed than evangelical Christianity. It's so ridiculous. And then they're worried about things getting taught in schools. It's like, you're, you're the ones that keeps her. Anyway, this is, that's off topic. No, but, um, it's not really. Cause it's it all applies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So I was just like increasingly uncomfortable. And then, um, the, nail in the coffin for me where I was like, I'm never coming back to this place was one night they were doing a, of course it was part of their series on sex was they did a million of them. And they had a sweet young guy speak about how he had, I don't know. He hadn't gone through conversion therapy, but he was talking about how he had been gay and now he wasn't anymore. He was choosing to live celibate and he was really earnest and sweet. But when the pastor got up, it was such a bait and switch kind of a thing because he was talking about like, isn't he so, isn't this guy so great because he's not an abomination and he's not choosing to be in this sin and he's not doing, walking in this lifestyle that is a path of destruction. And I was like, I almost screamed in my chair. I was so fucking mad because I was like, if that's this guy's truth, this one guy that shared, that's wonderful and beautiful as long as he's happy and healthy, that's fine. But what you're saying to everybody here, and they're doing this on campus at the school I went to, what you're saying to every queer kid here is that you don't deserve to have these human urges to want to love and be connected to somebody physically, to have a family of your own, to deserve that kind of love for yourself. And that is just trash. It was so horrible. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm never going back here again. This is just not okay. And that and that was actually a pastor, right? That wasn't they weren't piping in mm-hmm. Driscoll. They were <clears throat> that was an actual pastor of the church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did they use the word abomination? Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Yeah. It's but like great way to love people. And, but also I know. also for you, you have this past and you're sitting there with all this past and you're like, 
am I an abomination? How I, yeah. right? Like what, mm-hmm. what? It was. And I have really good friends who are queer. So I was just like, there is, and family members. And I was like, there's no way in hell I'm ever setting foot in this place again. Cause this isn't okay to do to people. Yeah. And were you married at the time while you were there? No, this is, no, this is when I was just kind of like floating around before I'd even met my ex-husband. Okay. Mm-hmm. So out you go <laughs> when that happened. <laughs> I was like, bye. So I didn't go to church again <laughs> yeah. for a, a little while. Huge years. Mm-hmm. What brought you back to the church then? I found a really lovely little vineyard church that was run by a older guy who was very gentle and kind and very egalitarian and very humble and very spirit led. And it was just a safe place where there was no pressure on me at all. I could just kind of fade into the background and they were just like friendly and chat with me, but they never told me that I had to do anything extra. So... Yeah, I would go there. I wasn't super engaged, but it was it was soothing to me, like against that kind of fear of eternal damnation. Like if I would go and check in, I'd kind of be like, okay, maybe I'll be okay for a little bit longer. And they were nice, and they were like really the things that they would, this pastor would preach on was really what I really believed Jesus to be about was just being humble and lowly of heart and and loving people first, just trying to be good to each other, you know, which is pretty simple. So. When I was going to that church was when I met my ex-husband, who was going to the Acts 29 church. Our paths hadn't crossed, even though he had been going there at the same time. He was there for about probably like six years when I met him. And we met at work. He, on the surface, seemed a little, uh, he was a little dramatic, but it seemed like it came from a good place. And he seemed interested in me like as a person, like he would ask me questions and about things that I thought. And so that was nice. And the way that he talked about God was really reassuring. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of like, okay, maybe this is all right. And so keep in mind, I'm still without any kind of therapy mm-hmm. for my post-traumatic stress disorder. And I had these kind of, you get, when you have PTSD, you kind of get a sense of hypervigilance. So you're really on guard for threat when they're when there might not necessarily be a threat, you get hyper fixated on certain things that look dangerous and then you miss a lot of other cues, right? So I was really hyper vigilant against anything that seemed like narcissism because I was like, I'm never doing that again. I learned my lesson. Never, 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 no, 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 no. So I missed a lot of the red flags that came along with him about his lack of self-regulation. He would get really unsettled very easily by things and slighted very easily and say that people were doing things against him and, and stuff like that. And at the time, I was just kind of like, okay, that's probably true. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Someone says that I generally tend to not think they're lying. So it was very off-putting because he was really, really attentive and kind and sweet while he was, we were dating. And to the point where he was like, well, you never have to come to my church if you don't like it. That's okay. You can still go to your own church. I'm like, so that was nice. And he said, do you want to just come with me once just to like check it out? I'm like, all right. But if they have Mark Driscoll up there, I, I, I will not stay. And he was just like, that's fine. That's totally fine. I get it. Because they were, the church at the time was literally just like broadcasting and sermons in there. They didn't even have their own pastor preaching anymore. It was ridiculous. So I go in there and sure enough, they put this asshole on the big screen. And I was like, <laughs> I'm out of here. I was, I was like, couldn't believe it. I was like, absolutely not. Nope. This guy is trapped. And I was so upset. So he, he was just kind of, I held it together. I was like, not, I didn't 
have a meltdown. Like I sat there for a bit and then I was like, uh, I'm going to go. And he said that that's fair. Like I, uh-huh. you told me that's what would happen if he was on there. So, so wait, hold on. It was Driscoll. They were piping on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And was that yeah. who said the first comment that you heard? About like, about marriage? no about the man who was no longer an abomination. Oh no, that was the local pastor at the so X twenty nine. So church the local pastor, that. and that's the same church you went back and tried again just now, right? Yeah, because mm-hmm. my ex husband been going there the right. whole time, and so that yeah. local pastor was not preaching at the time. Driscoll was just getting piped in, and I think yes. uh, for listeners. There was a season of time where there was kind of like this like underground Mars Hill network within Acts 29. And I think that there were some churches like satellite type campuses that were like trying out being Mars Hill in other areas of the country. Mm -hmm. So that would be why like Driscoll would all of a sudden be like preaching. Not to mention the fact that who knows how many sabbaticals the pastor at this local church was going on that (laughs) caused Mm -hmm. space for Driscoll to be the one teaching. But so you get there, Driscoll's on, he annoys you Uh for many reasons. I'm sure he was saying problematic stuff. You leave. What comes next? Yeah. Uh, So my ex continued to go and I went to my church and then the pastor of that church retired, which I was so bummed, but it's like he totally deserved it. He was he was pretty old. Okay. And so yeah, he was like in his late seventies. Okay. And the guy that got hired on was just kind of like it was just more of the same kind of this young, restless reformed kind of thing, which was a total turn from what the vineyard was all about. And I was just like, Oh no, I can never yeah. escape. Like it was so oh it sucks. So then what ended up happening was my ex-husband and I got engaged and married and really quickly, was your ex-husband like involved in that X29 church or was he just going? Oh, yes. Okay. Heavily involved. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about that and what that looked like so we can just hear kind of why was he involved there? <laughs> and like what what type of responsibilities were they giving him? Was he cuz you mentioned that they were really adamant about training pastors up like quickly? Mm-hmm. Was he kind of on that trajectory? What was going on with that? Yeah, he really really wanted to be a pastor and I think it was because he really needed a he wanted to be important. He didn't have a really good sense of identity mm-hmm. and he wanted to really kind of figure out how to do that in a way that would kind of gain him respect. Yeah. From what I understand, he never said this, but this is just kind of what I gleaned from being with him. Uh, So he was a deacon. He led a small group. He was on the safety team. He would do like set up, tear down, all of these things. For free. And it was, right, for free. And it was so weird because at the time when we'd hang out and he he would like only hang out with people from the church, it was just kind of not how my life was, but he was kind of cool with how I was. So it was okay. And they would all just kind of talk about how almost like bragging about, oh yeah, I didn't get any sleep because I had to go set up for these services and then wake right back up and go and do these things. And yeah, I didn't get to study for this test because I had to go off on this outreach and la la la. And I'm like, this isn't good. Like, what are you talking? Why is this something to be praised? It's like your, your health is being sacrificed Yeah. to, for what, you know? So, um, yeah. So I think it was like, the whole kind of manly man aspect of Acts 29 was really appealing to him. He liked that. It gave him a sense of community that he'd never had before, which was really, really important to him. Mm. 
and a sense of like encouragement and somebody being there, which she hadn't had. So I know it was like really, I totally understand why it was so appealing to somebody like him who struggled a lot with his own mental health. So it started to take a turn when his small group wasn't growing because they like, I guess numbers are important. Yeah. Quantity of humans is the only measure of success. So he, and they were all like, everybody in that church was so, so busy all the time. So he would reach out to the people in his upline for continuing the pyramid scheme thing for help. Mm -hmm. And they would just kind of tell him, you're not doing good. Like this must be something about you and wouldn't give him any guidance or support. This is from what he said. So he started to become really depressed and he would tell me that he was feeling suicidal and I was very alarmed and I was like, you need to get some help. Are you married at this point? Yes. Okay. Yes. So you got yeah. married and you were still not attending the church with him. Yeah. Which he started to, that's when the, the switch kind of flipped and all of a sudden he became, it was bananas. Cause before where he would be really permissive and kind of let me do my own thing and really curious about what I thought and felt all of a sudden it was like, I'm controlling the finances. You don't get a choice. Even though I was bringing in the income because he couldn't keep a stable job wasn't allowed to see many of my friends, tried to isolate me from my family a lot. He, yeah, he's, he kept trying to make me go. So it was only like a short amount of time when we were first married that he was still at that church because what ended up happening was because his small group wasn't growing, he wasn't getting support, and he started to become suicidal. One of the leaders told him they needed to go for counseling, which I'm like, yes, please, that's a great idea. Please just go, yeah. do that. But they sent him to a counselor that was a part of that church and totally would share the information with the pastor so he wasn't safe to disclose, which I was like, somebody needs to write to the board to report this person. That's not okay in any way, shape, or form. And you shouldn't be a therapist or call yourself a therapist. So he got really disillusioned with the idea of therapy. And they basically kind of pushed him out. Like he just generally stopped getting scheduled for safety team stuff, stopped getting scheduled for science. So they just started phasing him out and engaging with him less and less. And it was heartbreaking for him. Yeah. He never really recovered. And I mean, there's a lot more going on with this dude besides that. But for context, like I had never seen him show anything besides like anger or happiness sometimes. But there was one day, probably like three years into our marriage where he came home from a run in tears. And I was like, what's wrong? And he was like, I just... I just like am so sad about what happened to me at that church. I'm so sad I lost everybody and that they wouldn't be, be friends with me anymore. It was really devastating. I was like, oh my God, yeah, this is a big deal if you're crying. That's a long time of his life though. So you said it was like I know. six years, right? Oh man, by that time, by the time he left, it was like almost 10. Cause it was, yeah. So when we met, he'd been going there for six years and then it was like, yeah, it, or longer than that. And no one, no one like, the leadership team or people I guess he was close to, they weren't reaching out to him knowing that he was having suicidal thoughts or depression? That's the problem where his his reporting to me I don't think was as trustworthy. Okay. So I don't know so what could have know. been said. Yeah. No. Yeah. But talking to his friends later on, because he had some friends that went to that church that really did stay engaged in his life that were wonderful friends for him, they would tell him that he needed to like slow down and they needed to get help. And he was just, he didn't want to hear it. He wouldn't accept any kind of feedback at all. Mm -hmm. So it's partly a failing on the leadership, but then it was partly like his, his character flaws that really 
caused him to to decompensate the way he did. Yeah. And you describe mm-hmm. the relationship controlling. He's controlling the money. Mm-hmm. He's controlling your relationships. So that that marriage became abusive very quickly, like overnight. And it wasn't until I listened to that podcast that came up about Mars Hill that I just felt a sense of rage that I hadn't felt very often Mm -hmm. when they were talking about women. I was like, so the way he treated me wasn't just like, because he made this up, this is how I'm going to treat my wife. He was taught to do this. Mm -hmm. He was taught to do these things to me. He was taught to tell me that he was loving me at a choice and obligation. He was making a choice, not because of who I was. He was taught to be dismissive of me and, and his, and to be the spiritual head, which meant that anytime I brought up something about the Bible that wasn't jiving with his Calvinist complementarian view, he'd tell me I was a heretic. (laughs) He was like, uh, yeah, he was really angry. He was really aggressive. He would throw things at me, which, um, get upset with me when we were driving and start to drive really recklessly, which was frightening. I thankfully found a therapist that diagnosed me correctly, probably two years into our marriage. Mm-hmm. I started working with her and I started to just all of a sudden you get this perspective of like, oh, this isn't a good thing. Like this is really, really bad. So I stopped. One of the other things that I mean, all of us ladies in those situations were taught was like, you have to give your husband sex whether you wanted to or not, because otherwise he's going to cheat on you. And then it's your fault yep. because you didn't give him sex. So it's like, whatever. so I stopped doing that because I was just like, I don't like this, you know? And so then he started raping me when I was in my sleep and I started to tense up. So that made, it was really hard to do work from the trauma in the past when it was happening again. And it was so just earth shattering that it would happen again with somebody that I thought was safe, that I just, it was, it was a rough go. Like my therapist was a saint. <laughs> she, mm-hmm. she really saved my life. So it was, I started then to have more problems with sleep and I w- would have like bracing and muscle tension when I would wake up and I'd clench my jaw and it was really sore. And so it was totally not a marriage of any kind. Like it wasn't, we never laughed together. We never did much together anymore. He was always upset. He was always in between jobs because he was, he had gone to seminary and I'd supported him through that financially. And he couldn't find a job as a pastor because there weren't any to be had really. And he also was pretty volatile and everybody kind of saw that. Like he couldn't keep it up appearances for too long. The turning point for me came when we was, I had been working with my therapist. I had stopped drinking altogether because it wasn't, I just knew that it wasn't healthy for me at all Give with what I was dealing with. Like it would just kind of, it wouldn't help me heal mm-hmm. because it would just kind of blunt everything that I needed to feel to be able to move through it. And he kept on drinking and, and he kept on like going downward. And so there was a day where he got really drunk at a friend's birthday party and blacked out and I had to drive him home and he kept having to make me pull over so he could puke out the window. And I was just like, dude, like you're not doing good. And he just lay on the bathroom floor and just started just yelling about how he was just a piece of shit and he wanted to kill himself and all these things. So I was like, didn't know what to do. Got all the guns and anything that could be used as a weapon out of the house. I talked to him the next day when he was sober and I was like, you need 
to get help. Like you need to find a real therapist to help you with this mm-hmm. because I can't keep doing this. I can't, I'm, I can't co-sign this anymore. Like you're just asking me to keep putting up with this horrible behavior and it's not okay. It's not healthy for you. It's not healthy for me. And he just told me like, no, you gotta, I don't know what you're talking about. Everything's fine. And don't, you can't tell anybody because we got to handle our stuff inside. My therapist helped me kind of make a plan to keep myself safe. So I got all of my stuff. Oh, no, no, no. I didn't do that yet. Sorry. I wrote him a letter that was just like, you know what? I really love you. And I really am worried about you. And I really need you to get help. I've been getting help. You really need to do that. And I need to take a little time away from you just to have some space so that you can decide what to do. Because this is what I really need. And speaking to you as your wife, you know. And he was pissed and he blew me up on my phone and was just like, don't ever come back. You've broken our marriage vows. And he called on my friends and family and told them that I had betrayed him. And he blew me up on Facebook, which I didn't have because I don't like social media. And so some of my friends were like sending me screenshots. They're like, are you okay? And I'm like, what? The fuck? Ooh, yeah. that went way worse than I could have ever anticipated. So... I went back and I was kind of like afraid because our finances were still entangled. Mm -hmm. And I went back to get some of my stuff, like just the bare essentials out of our apartment. And he had ripped up some pages out of my private journal and he'd broken my laptop. And I was just like, this guy is, because I had kind of gotten like those red flags, right? That I couldn't attune to when I was so in my own PTSD symptoms before those started to calm down, we were just like, all of a sudden I just started remembering how he would kind of seek revenge towards people who wronged him in these ways. Like just in like people we barely knew. And I was like, he could destroy my whole life. Like he really could. And this is like, he was willing to key a guy's car for parking wrong near him. I'm like, he could destroy my whole life. So I got very freaked out and I was just like, okay, I got to a friend's house. She helped me get just like a few boxes of things out there. I don't think I was like thinking consciously through, like it was an active planning. It was all very much survival mode. And I just kind of somehow made the decision in my mind of like, you just got to placate him so that he doesn't blow up until you're financially like extricated from the situation. And so maybe things will be okay. So at that time he was, some of his friends tried to intervene. The pastor of the church we were going to tried to intervene and just like talk some sense into him basically and being like, she was just trying to help you. He she was just like, nope, totally closed off to all of it. And his family called me really concerned. And so I just kind of made this decision of like, okay, if I can kind of keep myself safe, I can get a way out of this. So I was just telling him like, I don't want to get a divorce. And maybe there's a way that we can work through this. And he'd be like, no, no, no. And just like, send me all of just these wall of text things about how terrible I was and what a horrible person I was. I kind of was trying to just be really, really sweet to him, just to kind of keep him gentle. I was like, what if we got, I did my homework and I was like, what if we just got like separated for a little while and then we'll like wait a few months and see if we can work things out. And he's like, fine. And I was like, okay, cool. Cause I'd done my homework and I was like, okay, if we're separated, then I'm not financially obligated for anything Mm -hmm. that he does. And cause he had a lot of credit card debt on, on his own, on his own card, thank God. And uh car payment and then a lot of student debt and I had none. And so I was like, I'm not going to be held liable for this. So we get the separation paperwork signed. He keeps being just like, not very kind. And so a few more months go by and I was just like this back and forth. We're kind of getting these, these loose ends worked out. 
so he tells me, he's like, I don't, I don't want to be married anymore. And I said, okay, like if that's what you really want, like that, you know, I'm really trying hard to work on this. He's like, I'm done. I'm like, okay. So I get the divorce paperwork and I, he fills it all out and I filed it. And right before I filed it, I was like, this is like the last chance. Are you sure? And he's just like, I don't want to be married anymore. I'm like, okay, cool. So I just put it in there and I was like, thank God. Like it's just a wave of relief. And it was really quick. So I was really thankful for that. And I just didn't want to have anything to do with church at all after that because I had left the day I left. I felt a sense of relief that I had never felt ever. And I was just kind of like, you know what? Like I, I tried it your way, guys. Like I tried to play the game that you wanted me to play. I clicked all of the boxes. This has been like at this point, at least over two decades of my life that I've been searching and going about it in this way for you Christians. And it didn't work out. And it was almost kind of like I got given some cheat codes for life because I was just like, oh, I can I can do anything I want now. Like I'm free. Like I don't have to have these expectations, you know. Nobody's ever going to ask me when am I getting married or having kids because they're going to be like, ooh, she's you know, a pariah, which was fine with me at that point. Um, it, <laughs> I was just like over it. But there wasn't that pressure to have to go and perform anymore. And um, the last church we ended up at, they were really kind. But I just I just didn't I didn't want to be a part of it anymore. It just wasn't authentic to me. And the people that I had been around who had loved me the most, it was so much easier to just be myself and to actually be who I was truly meant to be without this overlay of this just toxic model that infiltrated everyone. Mm -hmm. I went on about my life and didn't hear much from him for about two years. And he reached out to me in the middle of the night. I could tell it was a drunk text because it was like 4 a.m. And I'm like, mm, he's not up that early unless he's <laughs> like stayed up. Yeah. And he sends me a text that was like, uh, we haven't talked in a while. Do you want to work on that? And I was like, are you fucking kidding me, dude? I was like, do I want to work on that? No, I don't want to work on anything else with you ever again. So <laughs> was he like, say that. was I, he wanting to just like work on your marriage? Like, you know, who knows? Yeah. We've been divorced for, for two years at that point. I was yeah. like, what are you talking about? Um, who knows what he wants? I'll, I'll never know. I'll, I'll literally never know. But, um, so I just sent back to him like, no, you caused me an immense amount of pain and grief and I don't ever want to have anything to do with you. So please don't ever contact me again. He was just like, okay. So I blocked him and I felt free to block him because I was still always kind of like worried that he would do something to me in some way. And a little bit after that, he would reach out to some of my friends and they were like, yeah, he's like saying that he wants to hang out with us all of a sudden. And it was really unsettling and disturbing to me because they had always been my friends and not his. And I was just like, this guy's just playing another angle to get to me somehow. So I got really freaked out and got a security system and all sorts of things. I unblocked him long enough to tell him like, leave my family and friends alone. None of us want or need anything else from you. And so you really need to just move on. And I never got a response. And he moved away and I found out probably like six months after that, one of his siblings called me and told me that he'd killed himself. And his sister and I had been really good pals and she had been really 
adamant about him getting help and she'd been a big advocate of therapy and, and meds and it really helped him while we were separated and she was always just so supportive of me it was just like that's it, it wasn't okay what he did and he's you gotta get you gotta do what you gotta do and just know that like I'm I'm here because he's my brother and like he, I just don't want you to ever feel like you did anything wrong and I was like well thank you so I was glad that she was the one that called me um and it was just pretty it was a, it was I was in shock but I wasn't surprised at all that it had happened because he had been so resistant to getting help and he was so, so, so impulsive. I just didn't really know what to make of it. And I didn't think that like anybody would reach out to me because I'm like, we've been divorced forever, you know, like who, Yeah. there's this family and friends that need comfort and support. Right. And so I was pretty shocked when I started getting like texts and, from people from the the church we had gone or the churches we had gone to in the Acts 29 church just being like oh we're so sorry to hear that we hope you're okay just these kind of generic things we should hang out sometime and it was just very violating to me it was very creepy I was like I didn't ask for you to talk to me right now I didn't want that and also if you knew anything about me you would know just the harm he caused me and how as horrible as it sounds, this is a relief to know that he's, he can't ever come after me and ever again. Mm-hmm. And if you really cared about me, you would know how hard it was for me to heal without you, yeah. you know, because while we had a few people at the church that we attended at the time reach out to me, the rest of the people that had been in our lives as Christians, it was like two of them that were his friends while we were in the divorce process that were just like checking in on me, nobody else, none of them. And it's like, so now you come to me, now you come to me because you're upset because he died. And now I'm supposed to read your wallet text about how sad you are and how many good memories you had with him. It's like, I, I'm not doing this with you. So I just started like copying and pasting the same text of like, you know what? You need to reach out to his family and his friends. I don't have a place in his story anymore beyond that. And you need to talk to the people that actually need you because I did need you at one point and you weren't there. So I think it was more gentle than that. I got a little more aggressive and later on when people yeah. would bring it up when I was out and about and I'd be like, Oh hell no, we're not doing this. Yeah. So yeah, that's oh. in that it's almost like a checking of the box. Like they right. like, like a process. Well, I need to say this and mm-hmm. It is, it is, it is heartbreaking because you, you, what you just said about when you really needed them, no one was there. It makes me think back on your story about specifically the churches you went to, like how it seems like everybody was lost in this process of like serving, showing Mm -hmm. up on Sunday, giving their money, money as a result, they sacrificed relationships. So like, you didn't really know what was going on. I mean, I'm actually proud of you for standing up and saying like, I don't, I don't need your, your sympathy. Like mm-hmm. you weren't there when it mattered. And I know some people will say, well, that's anger or rage. Well, hell yeah, it is. Cause you should have that in this point in your life. And, mm-hmm. you know, we should, we should be a place where anger and rage and empathy are all welcome. And then we work mm-hmm. together to understand how to love each other through all of those seasons. It's just really, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, first off, like, I don't really know what to say to this story other than it it's it's sad but I can I can see you on the screen and what's sad and heartbreaking but I can see you on the screen and you look like you're 
doing so much better and so well and healthy. And that is encouraging, but it brings me joy too, because you went through this intense hell multiple times, but seeing you on the screen, I'm like, but you seem so much health, like you seem healthy. Mm-hmm. That brings me a joy too. I also, I know this is crazy, but when you wrote your story, when you describe your ex-husband, you had a lot of grace and empathy toward him that frankly, he probably didn't deserve. And I just find that very warming because he was horrible to you. Mm-hmm. And not only did he abuse you and mistreat you, but he took like the very image of who you are and the relationship of how God created you. He stole that from you and used it to foster this abusive relationship. And that makes God incredibly angry. Mm-hmm. And you had grace in how you described his story. Because I think at one time you said, I don't know if anybody's going to share his story. Yeah, I don't know what else to say to that because my, my heart is so sad for you in this story. I, I just want to lament with you. I don't, I don't know what to say. Yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that because I think that would have helped a lot. Yeah. If anyone had done that back then. Yeah. I think something that would be really great for our listeners to hear would be, so you reach out to us and I'd love to know kind of your heart behind that and why you wanted to share your story, if that's okay with you. Sure. Yeah. I think that, well, one of my friends who is still going to the X29 church and she, she told me that it's changed a lot. And so I was like, you know, I've, I've always told people, I'm like, I never want to take you away from your spiritual practice if that's something that works for you. Just don't force me into yours. And, and she doesn't. She's so sweet. And she had brought up, because um, we were talking about the Mars Hill podcast, and then she'd brought up your podcast. And I was like, oh, I got to listen to that. And I just appreciated so much what you guys were doing. <laughs> Because the worst part of all of this wasn't the actual events that happened because those were momentary, you know? But the the isolation and the, the silence and the not knowing who I was anymore, having that, that spirit within me just corrupted was just the worst part of it all. And I, I just was inspired because I heard you guys validating people who were going through what I went through and, and helping them reclaim that because that's so important. And I think people that are hurting in the church just need to know that it's like, this isn't, you aren't bad and you aren't worthless. And it's okay to talk about stuff that has happened that isn't right. Because the only way that you can figure out what to do is by being able to talk it through, you know. I'm so proud of you. (laughs) This was really, really, really hard. I'm not quite sure where you're at on your journey of what you what you believe or don't believe. Do you do you have a title for that right now? Are you kind of just in process? would you say? Yeah, I I definitely, I, I, I think my, my spiritual faith is stronger than it was ever allowed to be. Mm -hmm. And I 
don't would never call myself a Christian ever again. I'd never attend a Christian church. It's just even if things do turn around in my lifetime, it's just like I ugh, I've tried so many times for so many years. If I'm okay now, why would I risk not being okay again by entering into something like that? I've come to view the Bible as kind of a beautiful text that is full of poetry and history and letters that provide a context for an ancient people. I don't think it's some, it's not something that I live by because I don't think it's applicable to modern living. It took a long time. I've been out of the church for five years, and I was very grateful to be able to get therapy to help me. Through all of that, I just find myself to be a lot more at peace and a lot more comfortable in my own skin and able to have a sense of life without this looming dread or fear that I'm going to mess up and not get raptured. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I know we probably are in different spaces in our journey and we have different beliefs. And I just want to say to you that in spite of that, like, I see you and I see someone made in God's image and so worthy and someone that should have been protected and loved and cherished and valued. You're an amazing woman. And I am so sorry for what you went through and what you've had to walk and the strength and courage that you've shown even just today to share your story and reclaim your voice in this. Cause something that's so heartbreaking is you, like Jay said, that you got, you got lost like in the processes of the church and the church isn't processes. The church is people and you were worthy of seeing. And the fact that you as a child, as an 18 year old kid were not even seen enough that no one even took the time to, to kind of question. I, there is no way and listeners hear me now, there is no way that in uh, two youth group leaders that there was not some red flags there with that guy. No way. So Mm -hmm. even though you felt shamed and quiet, that is on them. They should have been checking in. They should have seen that. There should have been adults in that scenario. There Mm -hmm. should have been shepherds that were protecting you and you were not protected and you were not cared for. And that is not the God that I believe in. That is not Jesus. And that's not the gospel. And I am just heartbroken. I don't, I'm not surprised. And I don't think it is wrong for you to be where you are at with your, with what you think about Christianity. Um, it makes sense. It is a logical outcome for the, the life that you have lived. And I'm grieved by that because I see you as so valuable and someone who brings so much life and, vibrance to the conversation in the church is missing out. We're missing out, not having you be a part of it. And I'm really, again, just so sorry for what you went through. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Well, so I I think one of the other things I wanted to say first is that to people who are wounded in the church, like I've been wounded, it's, it's like what you two are saying, like that isn't the representation of the Jesus that I've known and have read about. And the hardest part about spiritual abuse is that in a way it can be even worse than sexual abuse because sexual abuse is like a moment, but spiritual abuse takes like the good in you and twists it. And it, they corrupt like that image of God within you 
for something that they can hold power over. And it's just, that's the worst part that I would hope people would get a language for after hearing all of this. And that's why I, so I'm not just like trauma dumping, but it's just like, yeah. And then I did just have something that I wanted to say to pastors, if that's okay. Yeah. So I want to say to pastors that if you listen to this and think that I've never engaged in any of the extreme things that she's talking about, I'm off the hook. I want you to hear me now that if you're preaching complementarianism and Calvinism that is elitist and divisive, you are the problem. You have become those whitewashed tombs. You are the only ones who can make sustained change by humbling yourselves and examining the impact of your words. People's lives are at risk. Purity culture creates rape culture, and those things kill, and discrimination kills. And if you do not change, you will not be allowed to keep the privilege of the pulpit. So put down your craft beer and pick up your crook. And if you're not caring for your people, you're not doing your job. And you can't care for your people unless you're willing to get to know them and what their hurts and hopes are. So start being shepherds and quit being about your own ego. Mm. 